Hi everyone, just to say that as is par for the course at the moment when recording, this was done remotely and so there are some ghosts in the system so to speak in this discussion of Israel. However, I do hope you find it interesting and engaging. Thank you. Hi everyone and welcome to this week's episode of the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. My name is Pete Finn and I am in the Department of Politics at Kingston University. And this week we are going to be discussing events in Israel since the start of the pandemic in the springtime. And with me to discuss that, I have my departmental colleague, Ronald Ranta. Ronald is a, a senior lecturer in the Department of Politics as well and has written about Israeli politics and foreign policy and also wrote a chapter for a report upon which some of these discussions will be partly based that was published back in September and examined events in Israel up to June 30th and I am personally quite interested to have this discussion because I was very much embedded in um, the kind of study and discussion of Israel up to June 30th and I'm really interested and excited to get an update so thanks for coming on Ronald. Oh, thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Um, so just to begin, could you, just for anyone who's kind of not got an understanding of Israeli politics in general, kind of outside of the pandemic, could you just give a broad introduction about, the, about Israel, about the, the structure of the political system, um, how that like, kind of key points of tension? Uh, well, I guess the first important thing is that Israel is a multi-party parliamentary democracy. It uses a proportional representation system for elections. And as the name multi-party parliamentary democracy implies, it has a multiplicity of political parties. It is a country which has a number of different divides. One of them is a national one between the majority population, which is Israeli Jews, and a large minority, about 20%, which are Arab Palestinians. In that regard, this divide is also manifested in Israel's continued occupation of the Palestinian territories of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Another divide in Israel is a secular religious divide. And you see that both in, in social pri uh, private life, but also in the political, among political parties. So again, around roughly 20% of the Israeli population will be considered ultra orthodox, but there is a kind of a, a spectrum of secularity and religiosity in Israeli life. Israel has always also had, because of the multiplicity of political parties, coalition governments. There has never been a government in Israel which was not coalition-based since its foundation in 1948. And this not is- at all. Never. Wow. There has never wow. been a political party which has won overall wow. control of the parliament. Some have come close, but they've always had to rely on coalitions. And anyone who's familiar with Dutch or Italian politics knows the complexity of having to manage sometimes very unwieldy coalitions. So if you, if you think about Israel's political divisions, you have a left-wing party, an Arab-Palestinian party, a center-left party, several centrist parties, and a, a center-right party, a several far-left parties, and several ultra-orthodox parties. Now, also in Israel, the division on right and left is, is not a familiar one to many uh, who normally look at parliamentary democracies. 
So there is a, a left-right division based on economics, but there's also a division based on secularity and religiosity. There's also a division based on how people view Israel's uh, nationality and relationship with Arab Palestinians. So you have, might have parties on the far right, which are in favor of left-wing economic policies, parties in the center, which favor right-wing economic policies, but left-wing social policies. It's a very complicated political system. And that's all within just a very small population as well, is that? It's around 9 million. It's just over 9 million people live in Israel. Okay, wow. So just uh, about a million more than live in London. <laughs> yes. Okay, wow. That is, wow, that is a fantastic introduction to a su supremely complex system in, within a very small population. Thank you very much indeed. Um, could you then, in that case, turning to the pandemic, could you just give listeners a broad introduction to how the pandemic has evolved in Israel, if there's any key dates you might want to flag to readers or key trends that have evolved? Well, I've said it to you earlier in a different conversation that in many ways it seems like Israel's response and events in Israel are several weeks ahead of events in other countries. So the first case in Israel was on the 27th of, of February. It's a case which was, which was of an Israeli citizen who came back from uh, Italy. The first confirmed case of an Israeli citizen, more generally speaking, was a week earlier, the 21st, 21st of February, of an Israeli citizen returning from the Diamond Princess cruise ship. Very early on, end of January, middle of February, Israel starts enacting a number of travel bans and travel restrictions on people traveling to hotspots, very similar to, to many other countries. Interestingly, during this time, beginning of March, it also holds a parliamentary election. We can talk about afterwards, the whole political dynamics behind that. Numbers in Israel start rising. I won't say rapidly, but they start rising, and Israel decides to enact a lockdown. This is before many, many European countries do that. It's, it, it, the lockdown comes towards the middle and end of March. Officially, you can say it's the 19th of March, but there are a number of different dates where additional measures are, are put forward. So 19th of March, a lockdown. 1st of April, it intensifies the lockdown. 12th of April, they have a, a mask mandate. Numbers come down dramatically, even though if you look at the comparison between Israel and many European countries, hospitalization rates and death rates in Israel have, were at that time much, much lower and are still much lower in comparison. There's a lot of debate at the time about the exit strategy the government utilized and whether that was the right strategy or whether they, 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 they are lifting restrictions too early. Over the summer, numbers slow, slowly start to tick up again. So much so that at the beginning of September, there's already another call for additional lockdown measures. There's a whole debate in Israel, very similar to the debate in the UK, about the tiered system. So in Israel, they call it the traffic light system. You know, the red, uh, yellow, and green for different communities, areas, towns, and neighborhoods, and whether they should have local lockdowns or local curfews. The debate proceeded up until the middle of September when numbers in Israel were really spiraling out of control. At that point, Israel had the highest infection rate in the world. And what's interesting about Israel is its infection rate, if you look today in comparison, is exceptionally high. That point also corresponded with Israel's having a much higher hospitalization and death rates than previously. The Israeli government enacted initially a three-week lockdown 
which was then extended to a five-week lockdown from the 13th of September to the 18th of, of, of October. It's now left that lockdown and tried to move back to a tiered system. But there's a lot of debate about school opening and school closures, which businesses should open, whether malls should be open. So another, a lot of the discussions we're having here right now have been going on in Israel for several weeks now. Now, if you look at the numbers in Israel over the, this period, what's interesting is that from when we wrote the report in the summer, around July, August, when Israel's death rate was around 30 for 100,000, exceptionally low in, in, in global, in global uh, comparison, um, sorry, three to 100,000, it's now gone up by 10. It's now 30 to 100,000. Yeah, which is a very short, a big growth in a short space of time. Yeah, this is literally over, over several months. And in terms of cases, it's all also gone up by a multiple of 10. Nevertheless, even though infection rates still are very, very high in Israel in comparison, in total infection rates, yeah. hospitalization and death rate are still relatively low in comparison, despite all the, the uptick and the measures. So that's roughly, cases were up a bit, lockdown, came out of lockdown, within a few months spiraled very, very quickly. We've come to, come to 9 million. We had several days of eight and 9,000 cases a day. If you had to compare it to UK, that's almost in, in, in the range of uh, 50,000 cases a day in the UK. Wow, that's it's really high. Yeah. Another lockdown, numbers have come down, and now we're about a month after the lockdown, numbers are slightly ticking up again. Okay, um, and so just to give some context to the, all those the statistics that Ronald was giving, so is, as Ronald said, Israel is just above 30 deaths per 100,000 at the moment. Um, the UK is about 85 and the US is about 80. So that is m much less than half of, of both of those. So despite that, that growth, the kind of, I guess, almost the time that was bought in the early period um, is still, still um, feeding through now. All right. Thank you very much. Um, turning to the government responses. Um, how much, like, so I had, for instance, last week I had a really interesting discussion with our colleague Atsuko Ichiju, Ichijo when we were talking about Japan and she was sort of a bit perplexed because Japan's got relatively low um, infection and death rate um, and their cases have been growing somewhat in recent weeks, but nothing like we've seen in the UK or in the US or France, for instance. And she was a bit perplexed because she couldn't really identify that much that the government had done. Um, and I just wondered, in the case of Israel, is that the case? Has it been kind of muddling through or has there been specific policies that, um, that kind of at a, a national level or a local level that um, those in power have implemented that have fed through into the response? So I think in Israel, it's very clear how and what policies worked. The initial lockdown was very, very successful. And Israel's restriction on uh, in, in flights and outbound flights from Israel, basically locking down the country, has meant that initially, the first few months, cases were very, very low. So if you mention the, the death rates in comparison between Israel and, 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 uh, and Britain, for example, the US, before the summer, Israel's death rate was three, four hundred thousand, when the UK was in the 40s. So there was a death rate of around 10% of many, many European countries. So the initial lockdown came at a really good time. 
the measures implemented in this lockdown were very severe, particularly in comparison to the UK. So in Israel, during much of the first lockdown, you're not allowed to leave your house for more than, uh, more than 500 meters away. 500 meters? 500 meters restrictions, yeah. Wow. Okay. Additionally, Israel put a number of controversial measures to enable it to better track and trace and deal with uh, people who need to self-isolate. One of them, the controversial measures, was the whole debate of how successful it was, but I think it was, looking at some of the numbers, is allowing Israel's intelligence services a hand in, in, in supporting government operations. So one of them was the internal um, security services, known in Israel as the Shabak or the Shin Bet, giving them the authority to help in track and trace. So there's a whole debate about Israel's internal, internal security services and the use of mobile phone data, which they have used in what they refer to as dealing with terrorism in the West Bank and Gaza, and to apply it to Israeli citizens, which has been very, very controversial. But what they have done using this data is they seem to have really boosted Israel's track and trace services. So some of the numbers I've, I've seen in, imply that the normal method of contact tracing only identified 30% of the cases that the internal security services managed to identify. Really? So they're really? two thirds more cases, basically, yeah, looking at the, uh, of mobile phone data. Additionally, they provided data for the police. They were not allowed, because of legal reasons, to check on people whether they're self-quarantining or self-isolating or not. But they gave police data. The police could, I'm not sure how successful this was, but at least in theory, the police could verify if someone is being self-isolating or not. And just the idea that it could be checked, I think might have also implied. So in the initial lockdown, seemed very successful. Numbers were very, very low. Things looked really well in Israel. They put a, a mask policy in the middle of, of April. They seem to have had the, the, the fingers on the pulse. There's a lot of debate in the government about how restrictive policies should be. But by and large, it seemed there's a lot of public support and there's a clear idea. The problem started with exiting the lockdown. I think this is with every single country of how much to lift restrictions and which communities will be targeted or hit and how much freedom people should, should be given. And this is where problems start to, to occur. And you can see it in Israel more than other countries because of the political division based on different political parties, even within the coalition government, the internal debate in the government and in the cabinet of which towns should have curfews, which towns should have additional restrictions. Oh really, because everyone is going for their own what's best for their particular town or community or 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 particular slice of that 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 cake that division oh, we, wow. can come to, we come to that if you want very shortly but two communities felt by much targeted by by, by, by these restrictions and have resisted in, in in some cases some of these restrictions and, and incursions and maybe it's not a surprise that there wasn't a clear way of exiting the lockdown and this clearly corresponded with a spiraling number of cases. There's a whole debate of whether to enter the second lockdown. And again, there's a whole political discussion on when to start it. And maybe the Israel started a bit too late. Because once it was enacted, again, numbers have come down dramatically. And again, this was a much more severe lockdown than we've had in the UK in, in comparison. Okay. All right. Wow. There is lots to um, lots more to dig into. Clearly, um, I wonder just before we. So there was lots there to return to. 
could we return to something that you alluded to earlier? Um, I'd just like to unpack it a bit more, which was the elections of um, it was it was in March, and then the kind of the personalities that came out of that election um, in terms of political parties. I wonder if you could just explain that a bit, and then maybe we can move on to talking about those divisions a bit more. So Israel has been at the political gridlock for several years now. For several years, there has been an inability to form stable coalition governments. This is one of the reasons is because of the simply the, the multiplicity of parties and the incompatibility of some policies, but also the divisiveness of the leadership of Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. He is the longest serving Israel, Israel, uh, Prime Minister in Israel. He's divisive because some see him as a savior of the country and a very shrewd and uh, effective politicians. Others see him as the epitome of corruption and nepotism, which they see in Israeli society. He has a number of court cases, which he is now dealing with for fraud, for breach of trust, and for corruption charges. There's also another case now involving the acquisition of submarines from Germany, which might again become another court case. This has been going on for several years. So Israel has gone through a number and of... And this successes. is all while Netanyahu is the head of state, right? Yes, if, all yeah. while he's the head of state. He's gone through, we've gone through a number of successive elections. The elections in March pitted the first real challenge to his premiership in the form of a newly created political party called Blue and White. Israel has a, has a history of newly created centrist parties which pop out of nowhere before an election, do well or, or not to be well, and then disappear a short while afterwards. So it's a new political party bringing together several former chiefs of staffs. Chief of staff, yeah. At the head, Gabi Ashkenazi, the former chief of staff, seen as much a centrist, a very kind of um, uncharismatic, but hard-nosed, effective military leader, which is seen as... Uh, trustworthy and honest. In the election, we had another inconclusive result. Netanyahu did much better than expected, but it came mostly at the expense of his traditional coalition partners on the far right. Basically, he managed to convince the public that if he was not the prime minister, the country will fall apart. Draining, votes, yeah, draining votes from his other coalition partners, traditional ones. It came down to a question of whether the Blue and White Party under Benny Gantz, was willing to enter a coalition government with Israel's only Arab-Palestinian political party, which in itself is an amalgamation of three or four different political parties. There's been a reluctance in Israeli, history, in Israeli politics to join with the Arab-Palestinians in coalition government, and there has never been an Arab-Palestinian party or minister. Not even a minister? Of those parties. Okay in a coalition government. Gantz was unwilling to do that. There was also fear that if he did that, maybe members of his own party might defect to the opposition. So there's a whole, so instead we had, as for the first time in a while, a national unity government. In Israel's history, we've had a number of these national unity governments. They're normally referred to as governments of national disunity because they're a marriage of convenience more than of preference. And what has happened since this marriage of convenience is that almost every week in Israel, there's discussion of entering in the new elections. And I think people are expecting at some point there will be new elections because this is not a long-term solution. 
The problem being is that the two main parties in this government, Blue and White and the Likud party, which is the center-right party of uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and I use the word center-right because that's the Israeli classification of it, not because that's how we view them from the outside, both are very reluctant to enter into a new election campaigning. Netanyahu's approval rating initially after the first lockdown was sky high, and there's a whole debate of him rushing for new elections, but the numbers going up again brought his, brought his numbers down rapidly. And now it's not clear what would happen in a new election. Okay. Well, he will not survive a new election. Oh, wow. Okay. So there, there is a real intersection between the, the pandemic itself and its effects and the um, kind of electoral success or not of um, leaders. Okay. That's really, really fascinating. Um, and could we return to another um, theme, which I think you, you hinted at um, some time ago in our discussion, and it was to do with groups that felt that they were being unfairly targeted. Um, and so uh, could you uh, discuss those a bit more? So, I mean, there's a lot of groups in Israel which are really unhappy with what has happened, but two in particular, and they raise a lot of issues both in terms of how government responds to things, their position in society. So if you look, for example, at OECD figures, Israel, by and large, appears to be a developed country with a strong and robust economy. Uh, markers on education and healthcare are roughly on average with OECD numbers, yeah? If you exclude two groups, and these are the ultra-Orthodox, and Arab-Palestinian citizens of Israel. Together, I mean, numbers vary, but you could probably argue that together they comprise of somewhere between 30 to 40% of the population. Their numbers in terms of poverty levels, education levels, are much, much lower than the Israeli average and much lower than the OECD average, in, in, more generally speaking. Among Arab-Palestinians, there has been a long history of marginalization and... Um, what I'm looking for, and uh, alienation to an extent from the Israeli state on issues of nationality, on issues of their participation in the state, also corresponding to issues of Israel's continued occupation of the West Bank and Gaza. In fact, I just mentioned earlier that no Arab Palestinian party has ever been a member of the coalition government. This is going back 72 years. I think it's a very telling thing. There's also been debates in recent years about Israel enacting a national, national identity law, which will classify Israel as a Jewish state and Hebrew as the, only, as the main um, official language, further kind of uh, marginalizing the substantial Arab Palestinian community. So when restrictions are put particularly on their communities or the Israeli intelligence services are using phone data to monitor how these communities are operating. There's clearly a very, very strong sense of feeling. Yeah? It also doesn't help that several Israeli politicians and uh, journalists have highlighted this community in particular and its adherence or uh, non-adherence to the rules, I think further adding to this and also growing s uh, suspicion. With the ultra-authors community, a very similar situation emerges. So this is one of the divis divisions in Israel between secular society and a more religious society, the communities are exceptionally poor in Israeli standards. They're far more marginalized and also more secluded and segregated in Israel, sometimes by design and sometimes by, by, by choice. 
many of the initial areas that Israel wanted to apply lockdowns to local lockdowns were ultra-Orthodox communities, towns, and neighborhoods. The special measures and curfews applied to their communities, and they felt very much targeted by the Israeli population. So much so that the two main political parties that represent them, which are in the current coalition government, have threatened to bring down the government if this, is, if this continues. And some of the government's own actions have been, so they're looking for, have been uh, softened. So the communities, the two communities and the two political parties will not further derail government policy or maybe even force new elections. Oh, so the, the, in, the kind of inbuilt instability in the system has played out directly within within the pandemic, and small parties have been able to um, kind of influence, get, gain an outside influence because the government didn't want to be brought down. Okay. So over the over the summer, when numbers were ticking up, the government's own coronavirus czar wanted to enact far stricter measures, specifically. Uh, on, on, on some a number of hot hot spots, if you're in the country, most of them were either Arab Palestinian or ultra Orthodox, and the ultra Orthodox parties in particular opposed those measures, saying it targeting their communities. So measures were softened, and maybe that resulted in the need to go to a, a second lockdown. It's unclear. I mean, what is clear, this is another interesting issue, is that numbers among ultra Orthodox and Arab Palestinians are much higher than general population. Now, there's many question, reasons why that is the case. One of them is simply looking around the world. It seems like more deprived communities and areas have suffered higher numbers. And that's definitely the case in Israel. Okay, so that's oh, an interesting parallel you could draw with elsewhere. Okay, um, looking at Israel kind of in general, apart from that, are there other, well, there was already a lot. I, I mean, the discussions of the phone data and how it was used and who, I mean, that in and of itself maybe it warrants a whole discussion, <laughs> a does. whole episode in and of itself. Um, but is there any other lessons that could maybe be applied from Israel or Israel, Israel just such a distinct case because of its, its location geographically, because of the internal politics? Is it so distinct that it's hard to apply lessons? I don't think it's actually hard to apply lessons. I, mean, I think there's a lot of parallels in terms of who has, where infection numbers are higher, which policies work better. It's also very clear that this debate over restrictions versus easing restrictions, as, which plays itself in, in other countries, is clearly something that countries can learn from what happened in Israel. The moment society eases restrictions, numbers go up. Now, the question is how you deal with these restrictions. And Israel has tried a number of different uh, strategies in terms of using uh, online learning for schools. So Israel, for example, has opened schools to a much lesser extent than in many European countries. The question of whether curfews and lockdowns to political communities work. So remember then when over the summer, when the numbers were going up in Israel in, in early September, when Israel went into, into second lockdown, when I was speaking to friends and colleagues in Israel, they were saying to me, well, yeah, we're now in second lockdown, but wait, you'll be there very, very soon. Just wait and see what happens there. And that proved to be correct. And I think what's interesting for me is that countries can see what is working in other, in other parts of the world, but are not drawing the right lessons from this. Okay. Please. Uh, so in what sense, what would, so what would be some of the, the what are 
what's an instance, uh, this might be slightly off piece, I suppose, not necessarily in relation to Israel, but what are some of the wrong lessons that are being drawn? Well, it's very, very clear that infection rates are much higher in closed uh, spaces where large people gather. Everyone understands that. In Israel, during the lockdown, it was very clear that the first lockdown and the second lockdown had a few differences between them. One of them, the second lockdown in Israel, allowed people far more a space to go outside, uh, even meet outside, but not indoors. It seemed that this did not have any impact on, on infection numbers. So clearly the infection problem is indoor spaces. Okay. Most okay. countries have clearly identified this as the main issue. So I think one of the things you can start, I think clearly already now is that restricting people's uh, ability to gather in small numbers outside makes very little sense. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. Looking at, 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 at the data. Second is that this issue of tier system and how to ease things and how to put restrictions, it seems like heavy handed tactics, particularly in terms of uh, indoor gathering seem to work. Whereas attempt to uh, placate business interests, which clearly is an understandable issue, and Israel has been really battling with how to, to, to deal with economic pressures. Once you start restrict, well, you start easing down the restrictions you think are most appropriate. So in Israel, the if you want the coronavirus czar and the scientist and the experts have put forward legislation, which was watered down in many cases because of economic pressures, it ends up backfiring. Okay. These okay. easing up do not seem yeah, to, but see what I'm saying is like, that once you water down the, 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 those, many of those restrictions, you end up in cases rising. So you have to ask yourself, either you go in with full force or don't go in, but these half-half measures don't seem to have made a huge impact. Okay, fascinating. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, just before we wrap up, was there anything else on the Israeli case that you wanted to um, highlight or that we haven't quite had the chance to touch on or explore yet? I think that there's two. I think one relevant to the UK, and maybe I should add it in terms of lessons learned, and one maybe not. So Israel has made a huge issue of how it used its um, external intelligence services, the Mossad, in procuring PPE and equipment during the, the pandemic. And one of the reasons they say it was very successful, and there's a whole debate of whether it was successful or not, and we can discuss another time, yeah, is that it gave the organization a lot of leeway in securing the uh, equipment and also a lot of money up front and um, enable them to operate with less bureaucratic restrictions. And as a consequence, Israeli government claims, again, we can debate whether it's true or not, to acquire a, a large deal of equipment, PPP, but also ventilators during the pandemic. And maybe there's something about how to streamline uh, decision-making in some areas during these, uh, during these difficult times. Because it seems like in the UK in particular, with debates now about the government and who got contracts for what, maybe giving a organization or a body which is seen as reliable by the, by the state and the citizens, in the, in, in, in the case of Israel, the Mossad, the authority and responsibility for something might make it seem as decisions are then non-political 
and far more efficient. Of course, we need more time to, to kind of, in retrospect, re-examine it, but on the surface, it looks like it worked well. The second, and this is not really COVID-related, but specifically about Israel, is even though Israel has gone through this whole period of, of, of pandemic, and it's been one of the main issues in Israel, a second interesting issue has been the beginning of peace agreements and openly and official relationship between Israel and a number of Arab countries. There's a whole debate of why this has happened, whether it's about the Iranian threat, the Trump administration, but clearly the signing of two agreements with Bahrain and with UAE. To a lesser extent, the discussion of signing one with Sudan. The not-so-secret meeting, apparently, Benjamin Netanyahu had with Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, in recent days. I think it's quite remarkable that diplomatic engagements have occurred despite of what has happened, and a lot from the Israeli perspective has been achieved. Of course, this is achieved to the detriment of Palestinians, but still has been achieved. And also, in many cases, it is appears to be a lot of cooperation with Israel, UAE, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia, also on the COVID front in terms of equipment, in terms of um, uh, testing uh, ideas and standards. So that's an interesting development that's happened. Okay, that is a really interesting note to end on. And I guess, well, we look forward to your paper on this uh, coming out. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, that is, you, that is an interesting fodder for a paper, right? Um, it's Israel's... Um, external geopolitical um, engagements during the pandemic. Uh, fascinating. All right. Thank you very much for coming on, Ronald. That was really uh, brilliant.